Now let's read from the scriptures and we turn to the Old Testament, to the book of Psalms and there, Psalm 41. Psalm 41 from the beginning. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, When will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words, while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen. And amen. Read the second half, as it were, of that chapter, Second Peter chapter one, beginning at verse twelve. Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, And the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Amen, and may God bless our hearts these readings from his word. Let us pray. 
Almighty God, again we bow in prayer to you with thanksgiving for all that is revealed in your word, these holy scriptures which are inspired by you and able, uh, profitable for us, able to make us wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And Lord, for your church, we come as part of that universal church, and we pray, O Lord, for your church in the world, the one who desires that others should be gathered into your fold, and we pray for the proclamation of your word, your gospel today, not just in other lands, but but also in this needy land of ours where so many have turned their backs on the truths of your word. And Lord, how we need a touch of your spirit, the revival of your church, and a great work of grace. We pray for evangelists and preachers and teachers and youth workers and outreach workers and others as well, and all of us as part of your church with differing ministries, calling people to faith and sharing the message of your love. Lord, guide and protect the missionaries who have left this land and given up security and livelihood, perhaps sometimes endangering their own health and life itself for the sake of Christ in their determination to make you known to others. Keep and bless them, Lord. Grant to all your believing people the courage to speak out in your name, to give a reason for the hope and faith that we have and to bear witness to the great message of salvation and new life that there is in and through Jesus Christ. This is our prayer, O Lord. Bless this congregation of your people here, and we thank you for the fellowship of your people, and pray that you would bless as minister and elders and all of the members here in the task of holding up a witness for you in this community and in the wider world around us. And Lord, we do pray for our land in these strange times, for our new king in all the responsibilities that fall to him. And we pray, O Lord, that as he is officially titled Defender of the Faith, that you would reveal yourself in new ways to him and that he may come more and more to trust in you. And Lord, bless all of our leaders in our nation, and we pray that more of them may seek your wisdom and guidance, may have the desire to see a land in which people seek your kingdom and your righteousness, and bless them in the difficult decisions about policy and practice that face them in this unsettled world where their every move is scrutinized and criticized, and especially that you would bless Christian men and women in high positions with courage and diplomacy, with outspokenness and tact, with boldness and respect for others. And Father, we also want to pray for the weak and powerless of this world, people who yearn for change but who can find no one to help them, for those in our society, homeless or unemployed, for the disabled, sick and mentally ill, and those caught up in circumstances that seem to be beyond their control so that they feel unable to cope 
with life. And for so many in other countries and continents who are poor and underprivileged, hungry and dispossessed, those who are suffering from the result of recent uh, earthquakes and uh, warfare in, in this world, even as we pray again for the cessation of that war in Ukraine, for you to deal with those who are perpetrating such evil. And we pray for those who are persecuted for their faith, who have been driven from their homelands, those who are imprisoned because of the name of Christ. Lord of all, we pray you would reach out to our needy brothers and sisters, give strength to those who are powerless, strength to survive, to hope, even to work for a better future. And Lord, we pray for our our own folk, people we know, especially any who are lonely, to find both human friendship and to find in you a friend they can depend on, that they may have a, a, a real sense of worth. We pray for those who are sorrowful. You would comfort the bereaved and may the, the sentiments that people sometimes express in such times that, about the Lord's my shepherd and, and, and I will cling to the old rugged cross and all these things become a reality for many, even in the shadow of death and when walking through dark patches on the path of life. And we pray for those who are unbelieving, amongst our own relatives and friends who see no place for faith in their lives and who imagine that life consists in the abundance of the things that we possess and who think that when they die, they pass out of existence altogether. Open the eyes of the spiritually blind, O Lord God, even as Jesus opened the eyes of people blind to the light of the sun in the days of his earthly ministry. So open the eyes of those blind to spiritual reality, to eternal truth, to your goodness and grace, the gospel, the good news of your great love that is so great that you have sent your Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Father, hear our prayers as we range over this world near and far and intercede for it and all in the name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. My own reading recently brought me up to Psalm 41 that we read earlier, and when I looked at Spurgeon's daily treasure, I found him making the, the simple comment that it's the third psalm that opens with a benediction, the word blessed. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. And what I'd like to do this morning is to draw together these three opening words of Psalms 1, 32, and 41, which all begin with that word, blessed. Psalm 1, blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord. Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. And Psalm 41, blessed is the one who considers the poor. Spurgeon's comment is, this is the third psalm opening with a benediction, and there is a growth in it beyond the first two. To search the word of God 
comes first. Pardoned sin is second. And now the forgiven sinner brings forth fruit unto God available for the good of others. You you know there are 150 psalms in the Psalter and they come actually in five sections and I don't know if you have in your Bible but Psalm 41 is the last in book one of the psalms. So three of the psalms from book one. There is a, a hymn that uh, it's the one that starts with God beyond all praising, that talks about blessings without number. We can only wonder at every gift you send at blessings without number and mercies without end. And here are three of these blessings, and perhaps we can begin at the beginning, if you'll follow me, in Psalm 1. Psalm 1 and verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now, Psalm 1 is often regarded as a kind of uh, programmatic psalm, in a way it's a kind of uh, setting of the scene for all of the other 149 that follow, and Obviously, it's significant that it begins by referring to the law of the Lord, which for us stands for the whole word of God. Very significant, because if there's one thing that characterizes Christianity in distinction from all other religions that there are, it is that ours is a religion of revelation, if we can call it a religion at all, but that's, that's another matter. It's not about human ideas and theories. It's not about any imaginings of our cleverness. But it's all about God's own self-revelation to us. He is God Almighty. And the only way that we could ever know anything about him is if he chooses to make himself known to us. Some years ago, there was a group of theologians, at least theologians so-called, who contributed to a book with the title, The God I Want. And uh, in, in some ways, the, the only answer, proper response to that is, to put it bluntly, who cares what you want? It's what is the truth that counts. That's what we need, the reality of who God is, which we can only know if he chooses to let us know him. Now, I suppose we, we, we know that. We can illustrate that in a much smaller way. It's true of human relationships. I mean, if you want to get to know me, well, beyond the visible observation of a, you know, a handsome elderly gentleman, beyond that, if, 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 I just, if you ask me, well, you can ask me questions about my beliefs, my thoughts, my views on various things, my background, my family, things like that. But if I clam up, you know, if I refuse to answer your questions, well, you can't really do very much about it, can you? You can't really get to know me. You can only get to know me if I choose to allow myself to be known by you. And of course, that's just a trivial thing. I mean, it's, if you lift it to an infinitely higher plane, How true of God Almighty, our maker. If Almighty God had chosen to remain aloof, if he had 
not revealed himself to us, then we might, I suppose, guess certain things about him, but we wouldn't really know what he is like. The central thing about our faith is that it's a faith that's all about God's revelation. And our concern has to be not whatever clever ideas we can dream up about, whatever God there might be, but rather with the reality of who he is and who he has revealed himself to be. And that's what we read in Second Peter. It's what scripture itself says. No prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along. It's the image of uh, the wind and the sails of a, a, a ship. Carried along by the Holy Spirit. Actually, a bit later on, Peter says there are things that are hard to understand, but the point is that what matters is not our theories, but God's self-revelation. And similarly, Hebrews, if you remember, begins with, in many ways and in and many times, God spoke to our fathers in, by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The whole of the Bible, God's written word, points to that living word, the Lord Jesus. As Augustine famously said, the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. So blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. So important, so central, so crucial. And the psalm contrasts such an attitude of responsiveness to what has been made known to us with other attitudes. In fact, if you you have it there, look at the progression in verse 1. Walking, standing, sitting. First of all, he walks not in the counsel of the wicked. And that's the choice. Is it to be? God's way or the way of the wicked. We all have choices to make about the direction of our lives and the way that we walk. Secondly, it says, nor stands in the way of sinners. And standing suggests a more deliberate choice. We, we use the expression, don't we? Where do you stand on a certain issue? Are we going to stand on God's way or the way of sinners? And then, thirdly, it passes beyond standing to sitting, nor, it says, sits in the seat of scoffers. There's the person who has made the choice and is now found sitting at ease in the presence of, well, it it talks here about those who, who scoff at the Lord's way, and we have plenty of them nowadays, don't we? People who scoff at religion, as they would say, who mock the beliefs of Christians, we all, we, all, we all know about that nowadays, don't we? They'll say you can't seriously believe all that old stuff and they'll pick on this or that aspect of the Bible's teaching, whether it's the belief that Adam and Eve were real people or that there's something wrong about same-sex marriage, whether it's believing that Jonah could survive his gastric journey or that people can change gender by their own decision. All sorts of things. Will we sit with the scoffers or rest on the revelation that God has given us? That's a question that 
confronts us all. It's a fundamental question. You know, many of you will know that what, what was the old motto of the city of Glasgow, may it flourish by the preaching of God's word and the praising of his name. That's the way any society will flourish, by the preaching of God's word and the praising of his name. And a society that turns from that will not flourish. Actually, I, I, I pass on something that a friend suggested recently about the a, a kind of a, a question to put to those who advocate the de-Christianization of our society. The simple question, how's it going then? How's it going? Is our society better, stronger, healthier and happier in its widespread rejection of Christianity? I, I, I think many people would agree, wouldn't they, that life, social life in, in this country of ours today is not what it once was. It, it's, it's coarser, less tolerant, less happy than it was when Christian values were at least respected if not followed by everyone. Now, let me pause and call two witnesses on the matter. One is a former Lord Chancellor, Lord Hailsham. Uh, looking back on his experience, he, he wrote this quite eloquently. The moment a society consciously begins to reject Christianity and its values, and for whatever reason begins pursuing the opposite, the most startlingly evil practices appear once more to emerge from dark corners and flap their hideous wings abroad. I forgot to look up the date when he said that, but there can be little doubt that these words have been proved true. The other witness is a very different person, the well-known commentator Melanie Phillips, who has written these words, As it happens, I, I myself am not a Christian. I am a Jew. And Jews have suffered terribly under Christianity in the past. Yet I passionately believe that if Britain and the West are to continue to be civilized places, it is imperative that the decline in Christianity be reversed. For it is the Judeo-Christian ethic which gave us belief in the innate equality of all human beings, the need to put others' welfare before your own, and the understanding of absolute truth. Without this particular religious underpinning, our society will lose the moral bonds that instill respect and care for other human beings. She, she goes on, without a belief in absolute truth, it will succumb to the dominance of lies. Lose Christianity, and what remains, remember this is not from a Christian, that's quite interesting, lose Christianity and what remains will be a vacuum which will result in religious, secular, and ethnic groups fighting each other and with the most brutal and ruthless filling the void. Very interesting words, are they not? And what is true of a society is true for the individual as well. I mean, Jesus said, after all, that he had come to not to spoil life, to add burdens, but to get, that people might have life in all its fullness. And far from detracting from the joys of life. That's his concern, that our joy might be full. And it all comes from seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. And, of course, what's true of society 
and of the individual is, is obviously true for the church as well. And we all know, sadly, that many of the so-called mainline churches have turned away from the teaching of God's word, decided to just go with the flow of modern secularism. I suppose in the interests of keeping in with the world and courting popularity, and apart from anything else, the question might well be asked, has it worked? And you have to say, well, hardly. Churches that have yielded to that temptation to be compromised to the standards of this world rather than standing on the truth of God's word, are people flocking in? I mean, we know it's a difficult time for all churches, including faithful biblical churches, but churches that court popularity in that way are more likely to end up actually being shot from both sides, despised by the world and, and cut off from true Christianity. Do you remember how Jesus once said to some Sadducees, you are wrong. He said, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. So much for the we know better brigade. People saying, you know, we, we know what the Bible says about certain things, but actually we, we've advanced, we know better nowadays. That's such dangerous ground. And there's the text. You are mistaken not knowing the scriptures. That's the mistake of laying aside scripture in favor of some other kind of advanced knowledge today. There is nobody so dangerous to your spiritual state as somebody who will even hint to you that you don't need to bother too much about the Bible or other and maybe even better ways of, of knowing God. And there's no greater threat to the health of the church than such a person. It's the road to deception and delusion. Whereas Psalm 1 talks about the blessedness of standing on God's word, delighting in the law of the Lord. It is actually a hundred years this year since the publication of a famous book written by Dr. Gresham Machen of Princeton, of the old Princeton, and that book was called Christianity and Liberalism. And that title, actually, the title was highly significant because he made the point that he was not contrasting two types of Christianity as if there were evangelical Christianity and liberal Christianity. He was contrasting two different kinds of religion, Christianity and liberalism. And before I move on, let me give you a quotation from an article, recent article in the Banner magazine by Ian Hamilton, its former editor, which summarizes what happened then and is how relevant it is still. <clears throat> he wrote... Machen understood that liberalism was not a Christian aberration. It was another religion. In the good and right quest to be generous and Catholic-spirited, Christians can become mildly tolerant of unbelief. We can be reluctant to speak out against error. We don't want to be thought narrow, bigoted, head in the sand, in the sand theological dinosaurs. We live in the age of so-called toleration, and then he puts in brackets, actually, we live in the age of intellectual oppression, 
The most illiberal people in this world are liberals. They don't want you to simply tolerate their beliefs. You want, they want you to applaud them and embrace them and woe unto you if you challenge them. And then he finished up. Machen refused to soft-pedal his trenchant critique of liberalism. He understood that what was at stake was the glory of God in the gospel and the eternal salvation of sinners. Well, there's one of these three blessings from the Father. Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. The second is found in Psalm 32, beginning of Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Another wonderful, simple text in a way, but how wonderful is that? Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. As it happens, I was speaking recently to somebody who was greatly troubled by things that he had done in the past, and he kept saying that he, he, he couldn't forgive himself for what he had done, which is a grim position to be in. And I was, always, I was trying to point to the, to the wonderful gospel of the forgiveness and grace of God, although I, I, I found it difficult to get through, actually. But it's, it's not really a matter of whether we can forgive ourselves. I mean, we, we understand what that means. But if sin and wrongdoing is an offense against God, then the question is, can we be forgiven by him? If not, then we are indeed in a terrible position because you know the Bible's testimony. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. But if the answer is yes, if it's true that the Lord delights in forgiveness, if we remember the words of Jesus about coming into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved, well, if he forgives us, should we go on about whether we can forgive ourselves for things that we've done? In one sense, the gospel is, is and has been called a scandalous message. I mean, are, are we really saying that whatever horrible, wicked, and evil things a person has done, God can wipe all that out, can forgive them, and, and cleanse them, and make them new? And actually, that is the gospel. That is the gospel of God's grace. And it's, it's, it's a wonderful message. It's not cheap grace because of what it cost. The death of God's very son as our sin bearer, an event which casts its shadow back over everything in the Old Testament and casts its shadow over all that comes after. Guilt is a terrible thing. And I know there can be a sort of pathological guilt, which is not healthy at all. But what if we feel guilty because, because we are guilty? Actually, years ago, I, I remember reading of Billy Graham talking about meeting the, what he called the head of a mental institution in London, who actually said, half of my patients could be released if they could know they were forgiven. An interesting statement, a remarkable statement, really, and a testimony to the reality of guilt 
because of our sin. Now, I know sometimes people accuse Christianity of being a religion that just produces guilt about sin. But, of course, it only diagnoses the problem so that it can bring us to the remedy. That's what, you know that old hymn that says, Tell me the story slowly that I may take it in. That wonderful redemption, God's remedy for sin. Christianity is all about good news. And if the Bible points to our sin and our guilt, it does so as a, as a skilled surgeon diagnosing the condition in order that something can be done about it. It's a plain analogy, is it not? If someone goes to the doctor and the doctor does some tests and then gives the person bad news, is it because the doctor dislikes that person or is an enemy of the patient? Quite the reverse. Facing up to reality is needed if something is to be done to bring about healing and health. And the Bible's diagnosis of sin is not a sign of being down on human beings. It's all about bringing us to a realization of our predicament so that we are led to this wonderful message of forgiveness and salvation. Now, David, of course, the, the, the writer of most of the Psalms, David knew about this himself. And he exulted in the blessedness of knowing that forgiveness. He had sinned seriously, as we know. And verse 3 in that psalm gives part of the kind of testimony that we famously get in Psalm 51, uh, where he says here, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Why? So that, verse 5, I should acknowledge my sin to you and not cover my iniquity. That is, not make up all sorts of excuses for myself. Rather, I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And he says, you forgave my iniquity. And that's why he started the psalm with that great statement, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Far from making light of sin and guilt, the Bible points us to the answer to it because it centers in the cross of Calvary, as expressed so well in that hymn that says, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. And how blessed indeed is the one who accepts that, who receives it in simple penitence and faith from Almighty God. It says, why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Now again, as I did in the first part, let me call two witnesses. One is the famous, or we should say infamous, Albert Speer, who was Hitler's right-hand man, or one of his right-hand men. And after the Second World War, he was tried at Nuremberg and sentenced to 20 years in Spandau prison. Uh, 
He was released in 1966. And Charles Colson uh, tells of seeing his last interview on Good Morning America. And this is what Speer said. I served a sentence of 20 years, and I could say I'm a free man. My conscience has been cleared by serving the whole time as punishment, but I can't get rid of it. That was his last public statement. He died shortly after that, and although it's not for us to judge anyone, he then had to appear before a higher court than any earthly one. And the other witness is a very different person, a once well-known English novelist called Marganita Lasky, who may be remembered by some as a star of What's My Line, The Brain's Trust, and Any Questions, which will mean nothing to some people here at all, probably. But al although born in a Jewish family, she was an avowed atheist, and one day she said in a television interview, what I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. I have no one to forgive me. What a sad statement that is, is it not? What I envy about you Christians is your forgiveness. I have no one to forgive me. There were two people very different but who, who, who so badly needed to hear and heed this great message of the gospel that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. He came to seek and to save the lost. <clears throat> and is all this a message that somebody here needs to hear today? Whatever the past has been, however much you might say, I can never forgive myself for whatever I've done, there is someone far greater than you who says he can forgive sins. There is Actually, in the words of one of my favorite old choruses, it was one of the ones in the CSSM chorus book that some of you may remember, there's a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. There's a door that is open and you may go in. At Calvary's cross is where you begin when you come as a sinner to Jesus. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. And then the third of these three blessings from the triune God is in Psalm 41 that we read earlier. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. And that brings us on to the practical outworking of the Christian life. Because we're never to think that the amazing truth about God's grace and forgiveness means that sin doesn't matter much less that we can go on in an easy-ozy way and take a, a, a light attitude to wrongdoing. Far from it. Or as Paul would say, God forbid. He wrote, you remember Romans 6, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And true Christian commitment involves showing love and care to others in Christ's name. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. I wonder if you've ever, if you've been slightly annoyed by a certain advert that's often played on, on television. It's, about, it's actually about seeking volunteers for a caring work. But it starts off with a voice with somebody saying, hey, you know that 
warm feeling that you get when you help somebody else, and then it goes on, on from there. And, and really, the Christian response to that might be, well, caring for others is not actually about any warm feelings that you may get from it. It's about the other person and his or her needs. And whether you get a good feeling out of it or not isn't really relevant. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But it's all about showing love in practical action. You know, you know the things that Jesus itemized in the sheep and the goats. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Christianity is not a do-nothing religion that's only concerned with our own spiritual comfort. It's about looking out on a world of need and seeking to serve that world out of gratitude for his grace. Now, I mentioned at the start that it was, it was Charles Spurgeon that sparked me off in thinking about these three blessings from the triune God, as we say. And on this one, he wrote, We must not imagine that the benediction pronounced in these verses belongs to all who just casually give money to the poor or leave it in their wills or contribute to societies, such do well or act from mere custom as the case may be. But they are not alluded to here. The blessing is for those whose habit it is to love their neighbor as themselves and who for Christ's sake feed the hungry and clothe the naked. There will be sharp dealing with many professors on this point in the day when the king comes in his glory. These are strong words indeed. It was said of the, the I've just been reading the biography of the remarkable Abraham Kuyper, Dutch theologian and prime minister, and it was said of him, although Kuyper never preached the social gospel, he did frequently accentuate the social implications of the gospel. That summarizes a great deal, doesn't it? Although he never preached the social gospel, he did frequently accentuate the social implications of the gospel. We know that no one is saved by good works. We know that. It's, it's plain in the Bible. But we know, too, that the Bible says faith without works is dead. So there are these three blessings from the triune God. Psalm 1, blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord. Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. And Psalm 41, blessed is the one who considers the poor. Three blessings from our Father, the God of heaven, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And no wonder, therefore, that David ends this 41st psalm and book one of the Psalms with that word, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and Amen. Well, let us pray now about these things. Our Father in heaven, how we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, not left us to 
make up our own imaginings of, of what you would be like or, or anything like that. You have made yourself known, and especially in the pages that we hold in our hands, the pages of your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us always to delight in the law of the Lord, the word of God, to take our stand upon it. And we thank you also for this glorious message. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. And how wonderful is that? How wonderful a message, Lord, that you are willing, you are able, through the sacrificial death of Christ at Calvary, to forgive our sins. We give thanks for that gospel message. And blessed is the one who considers the poor. O Lord, grant us grace that we may show forth our faith and our, 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 our dedication to you in the lives that we live and in the help that we seek to give to others in Christ's name. So help us, Lord, in responding to these three great blessings of your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.